Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Restaurants are primarily doing takeout orders now. Today, we'll hear about Black and Mobile, a new delivery service focusing on Atlanta's Black-owned restaurants. The Atlanta Opera has found a way to employ locally-based, world-renowned singers with full-time work and benefits, as well as safely serving the audience. Artistic director Tomers Vuloon will tell us more later in the hour. History of the gay rights movement usually begins with the Stonewall Uprising, in 1969. In fact, the movement's origins go back to 1957, when a brilliant astronomer was fired from his high-level job by the U.S. government. The importance of Franklin Kameny in the history of gay civil rights cannot be overstated. Yet, His name is not widely known. Eric Cervini has set out to change that with his new book, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual Versus the United States of America. He is with us now via Zoom. Dr. Cervini, welcome to WABE City Lights. Thanks so much for having me. When I read that this book was the basis of your doctoral dissertation. I wasn't surprised as your research is so extensive. What drew you to write about Kameny? Well, you know, it, it, it was a seven year long process. <laughs> it was a, quite a while in the making. And so I first stumbled across his name way back when in around 2013 and happened to watch the film Milk about Harvey Milk. And I had just come out of the closet about a year or two before. And after watching that film, I was just shocked that I hadn't heard that story before, you know, as a 21 year old. And it got me to wondering what other stories are out there from our past, from American history, that also have not been taught in public schools, in university curricula. And as I was searching for Milk's name and other gay activists who, you know, maybe needed a book written about them or needed their own film, the first name, of course, to pop up was Frank Kameny, who historians have long regarded as the grandfather of the gay rights movement, but uh, until now has never had his own book. I have to tell you, I imagined this as a biopic, and that's saying a lot for a doctoral dissertation. I don't, <laughs> I don't think many of them reach that stage. Have you been approached? We, yes, and uh, fingers crossed, we'll have some news coming out in the next few weeks or months. So we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm actually based in Hollywood, but I, I never, uh, never get too excited with, uh, especially 
everything's kind of in pause right now with production. So we'll see. I'm, I'm just encouraging people to read the book for now. <laughs> okay. Well, please let us know if a film or miniseries comes sure. about. So you first discovered Kameny in this treasure trove of research, letters, archives. At the age of four, he wanted to be a scientist. And by age six, Franklin Kameny decided to become an astronomer. I would say that's a rather precocious child. Yes. Would, would you talk about his youth and the path he took to realize his professional dream? Well, I'm glad you start there because so many people dive into his activism and I always have to remind them he, as you've said, began his life growing up in Queens in New York City in the 1930s. He wanted to be an astronomer. That was it. He wanted to study the stars and eventually he was successful. He went to Harvard and graduated in 1956 uh, with a PhD in astronomy. And anyone who studied American foreign relations knows that the next year was very significant in that it was the launch of Sputnik. So you could not have picked a better time to be an astronomer in the world, not let alone one from uh, with a Harvard education. And so he was really positioned to be one of the framers of the American manned space program. He very likely would have worked alongside Warner von Braun and others in the creation of NASA two years later. But as he began his government job, uh, he was working for the Defense Department uh, beginning in 1957. Within months, they found out he was gay. And because of that, and solely because of that, he was purged from his job and banned from working for the federal government for the rest of his life. So here is quite possibly the best qualified scientist in America to work for NASA. And we should add, unlike Werner von Braun, was not a proud Nazi, but exactly. an American who had served his country in World War II nobly. How did Frank Kameny respond to the injustice he faced? Well, one thing that was very unique about Frank was his attachment to logic. It was just something that he identified very early on as his life is very important of this idea of rationality, the scientific process. And of course, discrimination of any kind is inherently illogical. And that was really how he first began fighting back. And that was what set him apart because most people in his position, if you were fired for being gay or the government discovered a sexual indiscretion, then you would quietly move on with your life. You would try to get another job, a uh, different profession, maybe a different city. And Frank Hamini said, absolutely not. I've trained 15, 20 years to be an astronomer, an astronomer I will be. And so he begins fighting back, of course, at the administrative level until that no longer uh, works. It gets denied at every stage of his appeal. And then he becomes the first to take his case and that of any gay federal employee to the Supreme Court. He becomes the first openly gay man to petition the court uh, in 1961. And so, of course, everyone has heard about the, the Supreme Court decision just this past June. And that was really the culmination of a 60-year battle for employment rights that was initiated by Frank Kameny. Mm. And you bring out how extraordinary Kameny was in his appeal, a 12 page written appeal in which he never denied his homosexuality. Would you elaborate on his defense on that emphasis on morality and, and philosophy, which speaks volumes to his integrity, but must have baffled those he was appealing to. Yes, yes. And of course, you know, this is in the 1950s and the ACLU and other civil libertarians were used to fighting the government on uh, due process grounds. And that was really how he began his appeal, saying that he wasn't afforded any sort of evidence, anything like that. 
It was not a fair uh, dismissal. But then once he reached the Supreme Court and his attorney who was uh, affiliated with the ACLU actually abandoned him and said that you just don't have a shot. And so he wrote the cert petition on his own. And this document, as you said, was revolutionary in that it was a manifesto for gay rights and, and gay power a full decade before Stonewall. And one of the ways that he battled the rationale of the purges, the gay purges, because the government claims that if you were gay, then you were inherently immoral and you were inherently secretive about your condition and therefore susceptible to blackmail. Uh, if Soviet agents found out you were gay, they could get uh, classified information from you. And so he said, well, I'm going to make an equally arbitrary argument in response to prove that the government's rationale was also illogical, was also unconstitutional and arbitrary. And so he argued that homosexual activity was actually a moral good. And he made this claim openly. He submitted the, the, his case as Kameny versus Brucker, the Secretary of the Army, instead of Anonymous versus the Secretary of the Army, which was absolutely his prerogative. So in my dissertation and in this book, I argue that was really the beginnings of what gay pride is, what we celebrate each and every June of declaring uh, the moral goodness of one's condition and also doing so openly, whether it's on the streets or in the case of Frank Kameny in the Supreme Court. So the gay movement really began in 1953 rather than in 1969 with Stonewall. Absolutely. And of course, Stonewall is in the book, and it's an incredibly important moment in uh, queer history and in American history. But I think you also have to rewind a bit and see what was the context and who were the figures responsible for creating some of these ideological uh, foundations for gay power and queer liberation, because this Supreme Court document really was the beginnings of what we now know as pride. And he eventually translated it into something a bit more uh, pithy and compact. He simply said, gay is good. And I think you also have to look at the 1960s and Frank Kameny because it allows us to understand how important the Black Freedom Movement was also in the development of pride. Because what was Frank Kameny relying upon and basing his strategy upon well, it was the Black Freedom Movement. He was looking at Greensboro, uh, the sit-ins in 1960, and saying, I want to also reclaim morality and prove that the oppressor, the federal government, is the immoral one. He heard Stokely Carmichael saying, Black is beautiful, and he translated that into gay is good. And so we have to show that process of Frank Kameny really <laughs> acting as a Xerox machine, as I like to call it, of borrowing from the Black Freedom Movement and creating what we now know as gay pride. In the earlier days of his activism, Kameny wanted demonstrators to wear suits and ties to appear respectable as they picketed. This was something also important to civil rights leaders at the time, that you appear impeccably well-dressed and dignified. How did Frank Kameny evolve as an activist? It's a great question because that's really the story that the book tells, is that so many histories and, and you know, popular depictions of, of, of people in history paint them as static, that they don't change over time. And of course, people do change, and especially their political tactics and their own personalities even. And as you mentioned, Frank Kameny, was obsessed with this idea of, of order and projecting this respectable image, which of course was borrowed from the Black Freedom Movement. Students who were, who were uh, demonstrating on the streets in the South were told to dress as if they were going to church uh, so, because activists knew that they would be photographed. And this was the depiction that the American public would see of their minority. And Frank Kameny borrowed that same tactic, as you said, requiring men to wear suits and ties and women to wear uh, dresses and high heels uh, when marching outside of the White House on the 4th of July or the Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And of course, you know, one thing you have to recognize when you talk about this strategy is how is it also exclusionary, right? What about people who didn't have a suit 
or people who didn't have federal jobs to begin with, or maybe who didn't fit within the gender binary, who didn't identify as either male or female. So what I argue in the book is one of the reasons why Frank Kameny was forgotten and why the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement or homophile movement, as it was called, was forgotten was because it was inherently exclusionary, because they kept themselves so small by having this uh, attachment to respectability, which may have been necessary for them to make that step, but certainly as the 60s progressed, ultimately held them back. And that's why you start to see tensions within the homophile movement as a new generation of activists say, this isn't enough. This isn't representative of the entirety of the queer population in America. And that's why Stonewall was so important because you start to see the very least respectable, the most marginalized in a community putting their bodies on the line and galvanizing an entire movement. We'll be back with Dr. Eric Servini discussing his new book, The Deviant's War, after a short break. You're listening to 90.1 WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Eric Cervini. His new book is titled The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Here, The author discusses one of the earliest LGBT organizations in the United States, the Mattachine Society. So I'm in Los Angeles, and that is where the original Mattachine Society was founded by a group of of communists and fellow travelers in 1950 uh, here in, in the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles. And The Mattachine name was actually a reference to uh, medieval jesters in the 15th century in France who criticized the throne and were able to get away with it because they were wearing masks and they did so under the guise of of satire. Uh, And so one of the founders was a music teacher who studied them and uh, used this name as a cheeky euphemism for how the gay minority really was concealing their true identities behind the mask of being straight. And so that was the first Mattachine Society. And Frank Kameny, of course, knew about this organization. There were different chapters, but he just took the name. He he didn't really have any regard for uh, asking permission to use it. And that was one of the most foundational organizations in America, certainly the first national gay rights organization. And Frank Kameny recognize, you know, this is a a historically important name, and so I'm going to borrow it, and I think it's a name that we should all recognize and and also criticize. Well, on that topic of history, I was absolutely fascinated to read about the history of Mattachine and that it dated to 1435 in France, and you're right that Originally, the name was Société Joyeuse, which I would think with my schoolgirl French, the Society of Joyous Ones, Joyous could be translated as gay in that. (laughs) Right. You know, I never made that connection, but that's exactly right. And uh, Harry Hay, the founder of the Mattachine, 
hypothesized that those organizations, groups in, in, in France and then also Italy, were filled with performers and also drag queens in the 15th century who were, you know, uh, venerated. And he hypothesized that they were perhaps gay, even though that word didn't exist at the time. But I think that connection uh, uh, or similarity in uh, <laughs> uh, etymology shouldn't be ignored. That's, that's fascinating. But I love that it's a positive notion. And, you know, for all of our inclination to want to dismiss stereotypes, when it's something good, in this case, Renaissance-era music theater people, you got to love it. Yep, yep. (laughs) Especially the descriptions of some of the, you know, on on Mardi Gras, of the processions and the parades of the Medicine organizations and uh, some of these societies with uh, Mother Fool, as she was called, who was essentially a drag queen on a chariot surrounded by hundreds of men who were part of this Mattachine organization. This is the 15th century, right? And where uh, uh, gender norms and, and society were a bit more fluid because you didn't have the concept of being a heterosexual yet. It was just a matter of your, your behavior uh, and the identity was really quite fluid back then. Which is very important and back to the serious now, very important for us to be reminded of that, that ours is a much more recent received prejudice. I was invited to an event several years ago for the Lambda Legal Defense Society. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, here in Atlanta, they do such great legal work pro bono. I didn't know about ancient Greece and how perfectly normal it was to be fluid sexually. So there is just so much rich detail in your book. In 1968, there was a meeting of the North American Conference of Homophile Organization, which looks like Nacho, but you know, it's pronounced NACO. Would you tell us about their resolution and the slogan they adopted? Yes, well, 68 was a a very important year for many reasons, but that particular conference was the one at which Frank Hamney introduced his proposal that the official slogan of the homophile movement was simply gay is good. And as I mentioned, he, he, he borrowed that from the Black Freedom Movement and the concept of Black is beautiful. And both of those phrases were seen as a psychological antidote to the sense of inferiority that so many people, whether you identified as Black or gay, felt because society told you that that is how you should feel. And Frank Hamney, just like Stokely Carmichael, recognized that that was the root cause of so many of the problems plaguing their movements because Frank Hamney believed part of the reason why his demonstrations were so small, why it was so difficult to recruit people to sue the federal government, why it was so hard to convince gay Americans that, in fact, they were not sick. They did not suffer a mental disorder, as psychiatrists would have had you believe. He knew that he had to combat that sense of inferiority first. And so that is why in 1968, uh, the homophile organizations that attended that NACO conference adopted that phrase. And this was an entire year before Stonewall, that they were declaring gay is good. And although it was isolated within the homophile movement, it did not extend far beyond it. It was not until Stonewall that that phrase was then adopted by the new generation of gay liberationists who brought it onto the front pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine. It wasn't until the riots that the phrase exploded in scale. Perhaps Frank Kameny's greatest achievement was getting the American Psychiatric Association to acknowledge that homosexuality was not an illness. How did he accomplish that? 
Well, it was one of his chief accomplishments, and you can't talk about that accomplishment without also talking about Barbara Giddings. It was a team effort between the two of them. Barbara Giddings was one of the founders of the Daughters of Belitis, the lesbian organization, one of the founders of the New York chapter who teamed up with Frank Kameny to fight the American Psychiatric Association for the same reason that gay is good was so important as a phrase. They were fighting really the psychiatric community because the psychiatric principle at the time was that if you were gay, you suffered from a mental disorder. In fact, they codified that notion in the DSM, their, their handbook of mental disorders. And so beginning really in, in 1971, Frank Hamney and Barbara Giddings began a uh, concerted effort to change the, the definition of homosexuality and remove it from the handbook of mental disorders, the DSM. And they were successful within a matter of just a few years. The homosexuality was removed from the DSM in 1973. So it's incredible to see how rapidly they were able to affect societal change by simply creating coalitions and making logical arguments. I know that is cause for celebration, but it strikes me so sad that that's less than 50 years ago that you had educated people in advanced medicine still having acknowledged or believed before that it was an illness. Mm-hmm. Right. Despite evidence, overwhelming evidence by people and researchers like Evelyn Hooker, who was studying that exact issue in the 1950s in Los Angeles, finding that there was absolutely no distinction between homosexuals and heterosexuals when it came to mental wellness. And so it it really shows that no profession, uh, whether you're in the sciences uh, or elsewhere, is, is immune from prejudice. And I think now, especially as we're having a conversation on on racial relations and also trans matters, uh, we're seeing that we need to continuously evaluate our uh, assumptions and what we may consider to be a given uh, or scientifically based and say, is that really the way things should be? Or maybe uh, there is no basis for excluding trans people from the military or any of these matters that we're now confronting today. Kameny sent 25 publishers a proposal for a book to be titled The Federal Government Versus the Homosexual American Citizen. Eric, the subtitle of your book is The Homosexual Versus the United States of America. Some symmetry there. I'm so glad you caught it. <laughs> I think you're the first to have actually caught where the, the subtitle came from. So thank you for, for actually reading it. <laughs> oh, I am so glad that I wasn't overthinking it. Um, mm-hmm. Would you talk about the title of your book, The Deviance War? Because there's irony there, too. <laughs> exactly. And... One of the words that the psychiatric community devised to refer not just to the homosexual, but to anyone who deviated from sexual norms, now we would refer to that umbrella term as as queer. But back then, they didn't have queer. They didn't have LGBTQ plus to refer to this community of people who deviated from, from society. And one of the words that the government had uh, and psychiatrists used was deviant. So it was a very effective, convenient, but also cheeky (laughs) title that I was able to use because, of course, the cover of the book is modeled after the 1950 Senate report that really legitimized the gay purges uh, for the next 25 years. Uh, And because we also get the perspective of the government, whether it's the FBI uh, or the federal bureaucracy, I wanted to give that sense that it wasn't just rainbow flags in the Supreme Court, that this was an overarching narrative of America and the experience of those who fought back, whether it was Frank Kameny or Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, but also recognize how the government viewed the other, viewed 
sexual deviance as a threat to America as a whole. So depending on <laughs> what your views are when, when you pick up the book, it takes a little while to figure out, oh, who, who is this book really about? And uh, that was an experience I wanted people to have when they first learned of the title. Mm. There was some closure and joy in the end. Please talk about Franklin Kameny and President Obama. Well, Frank Kameny continued his life of activism after the 1960s, even though the book ends in 1971 with the eclipse of the Mattachine Society of Washington, the group he founded. And he lived to quite an old age. Uh, he passed away in 2011 during the Obama administration. And one of the most remarkable parts of the story, I think, in his final years especially, is the Obama administration recognized what the government, what the administration had done to Frank Kameny and the tragedy of exiling a genius, someone who could have been the architect of the American Manned Space Program from the government. And the head of the successor to the Civil Service Commission, the, the entity responsible for purging Frank Kameny was actually an openly gay man. Uh, he was one of the first cabinet level positions ever to be filled by a gay man. And he, uh, in 2009, his name was John Barry, invited Frank Kameny to the White House for a official apology to say, I'm sorry uh, for what the government did to you. And Frank Kameny simply stood up and said, apology accepted, and was there in the Oval Office as President Obama expanded uh, health benefits for LGBTQ plus employees. And he passed away just a year later. There's a beautiful photo of that moment at the end of the book. Would you please read the last line on page 383 through page 384? At the age of 86, Kamney remained proudest of just one thing. His formulation of the simple, logical assertion, once unfathomable, that homosexuality was morally good. Here you are, a national hero on a small scale, he had told Clifford Norton, the victorious yet closeted former NASA employee in 1969. You have fought the very government of the United States itself and won. If I were you just now, impoverishment and all, he continued, I'd be holding up my head in pride and looking anyone straight in the eye and saying, I'm a homosexual and so what? Accept me on my terms, or you don't get me, and you'll lose more than I will. And that includes your family. The closet is getting very stuffy. Come out. The fresh air and the sunshine are invigorating. Kamney died in his sleep on October 11, 2011, a sensible day to die, since it was National Coming Out Day. Gay is good. It is. And that is that. Dr. Eric Cervini, his new book, is The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening. As takeout orders have become more and more popular because of the COVID-19 pandemic, a new delivery service is focusing on Atlanta's Black-owned restaurants. City Lights producer Summer Evans has this story. Philadelphia-based restaurant delivery service Black & Mobile made its debut in Atlanta earlier this month. The company differs from other services such as Grubhub and DoorDash by only delivering from Black-owned restaurants around the city. I feel like it was only right as a Black man to represent not only my community, but to help uplift our community. David Cabello is founder and CEO of Black and & Mobile. And show our young people that, you know, we can do so much more than what they think of us and really just trying to be a positive role model. Shortly after dropping out of college, Cabello launched the first Black-owned food delivery service in the country. So far, the company has partnered with seven businesses in the metro Atlanta area, but the numbers are growing. Alana Simpson, owner of Taste Buds Atlanta, was the first restaurant in the city to use their services. The cuisine is American food with a Caribbean flair, a nod to her Trinidadian roots. We serve everything inside of a pineapple. The food is grilled. You have your choices of protein, 
mixed with veggies, served over yellow rice, and then it's topped off with mozzarella cheese. Simpson partnered with Black and Mobile as a way to help underserved Black communities. I think it was important for me, just being Black and young, to help support those businesses and to help people give awareness that, you know, Black restaurants are out here. As for drivers, Cabello says they hire anyone from any ethnic background. They don't ask race on the application. Plus, he says delivery drivers keep 100% of their tips. Cabello also says he has big expansion plans for the future. LA will probably be next. We got Chicago coming probably shortly after that. We got Baltimore, we got DC, we got New Orleans, Houston. There's so many places that we can bring this business model to and we'll be very successful at it. City Lights producer Summer Evans the new food delivery service Black and Mobile is available for download and serves several Black-owned Atlanta restaurants in the metro Atlanta area. In a moment, big news from the Atlanta Opera. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. Have you heard an interview on City Lights that you would like to share with a friend or listen to again? WABE.org slash City Lights is the place to find today's interview, as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at WABE.org slash City Lights. And thanks for listening. Mention gig economy and... Opera is not the first word that comes to mind, though when you think about it, opera singers are independent contractors who work from one job to the next. In what's believed to be a groundbreaking arrangement, the Atlanta Opera is about to change that model. Tomers Vulun is the general and artistic director of the Atlanta Opera, he joins us now via Zoom. Tomer, welcome back to City Lights. Good morning, Lois. How are you? I'm glad to be back. Thrilled to have you. And this news is so exciting. First, tell us about the Atlanta Opera Company players. So this is something I've been dreaming about for a long, long time. And basically... You know, this whole pandemic that's been going on for almost six months now underscored two things for us. One, it, it demonstrated the importance of communicating and connecting with our community. And number two, it has proven that despite our immense gratitude to our handheld devices and all those screens that surround us, there is no replacement for the miracle of live performances. Those are the two conclusions that I have from the pandemic so far. And so finding a way to go back to performances in a safe way has been something that we've been discussing and trying to figure out in the past few months. And one of the ways for us to go in that direction is the Atlanta company players. And so the idea behind it is very, very simple. And that is, as a stage director with two little girls at home, with two little children, I find myself dreading leaving home. I want to stay home. I want to be with my family. And talking to colleagues from the business, uh, they feel the same way. You know, the life of a performer is very, very difficult. We constantly travel and go from hotel to hotel away from our families and our loved ones. And so for years, I've been dreaming about marrying two simple truths. Number one is that the greatest singers in the world live in Atlanta. And we can probably have a separate interview of why that is, <laughs> like what attracts people to Atlanta. Maybe it's the airport. Maybe it's the wonderful people. Maybe it's, the, uh, it's this great city we live in. But that is a fact. And number two is that we were toying with forming a model, a new model that will allow people to be home and to do what they're trained to do, what they love to do, what they're currently deprived of doing because of the pandemic while making a living, while having an insurance, while having benefits. 
So that's the idea. It's very simple. And this is what's groundbreaking. Opera singers, typically actors in companies, they don't have full-time salaries and benefits. That's correct. How are you able to bring this about? So first of all, you know, when those singers are traveling, um, there is an incredible expense that has to do with the travel and with the housing. So when people, when we fly people from outside, let's say from Rome or from Paris to sing here, big expense that we incur are, are going to those two line items from a business standpoint. Uh, same thing goes for companies that import the singers that live in Atlanta. And so enter COVID-19, which is arguably the worst thing that could happen to us in our lifetime. But at the same time, it's the greatest catalyst for this idea because suddenly those people that are not available to us, that we cannot get on their calendar for four weeks to perform in Dead Men Walking or in Porgy and Bess are suddenly home. And another thing is that they need to perform as much as we need them to perform. And so it was kind of a perfect marriage for us. Uh, it allows us to invest in the community, in those singers and create a bond, we hope, we know, that would last way beyond this crazy year that we're in the middle of. Termer, I read that in creating the Atlanta Opera Company players, two models inspired you. The contemporary, being the Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago, and Shakespeare's theatre troupe, The King's Men. Why Shakespeare? You know, through history, during difficult times, and it can be a recession, it can be the Great Depression, it can be World War, it can be a pandemic. People found ways to come together and lean on each other and innovate and find new models through difficult times. And what happened during Shakespeare time, there was another pandemic and in the middle of it, he wrote King Lear you know, instead of complaining about how difficult life is and how scary it is, he sat down to write one of the greatest things he ever wrote. And he took the obstacle and he made it the way. That was his way. And that, those examples are prevalent through history. Another example is Bertolt Brecht, who is forming the Berlin Ensemble after World War II. So when things collapse around us, when things are difficult, if we find a way to band together and lean on each other, there's a great hope. And the hope goes beyond the crisis. The hope goes further into the future, which I believe is bright. Now, the Atlanta Opera Company Players consists of a dozen performers. You designate four who essentially will lead the group. They already have a formal relationship with the Atlanta Opera. Who are those four? So as you said, it's an incredible group of 12 people and a lot of them are known to the Atlanta audience. A lot of them are known to the opera audience at large because they're performing the greatest opera houses in the world. And they also live either in Atlanta or close by in the Southeast. They represent a diversity that is very important for us to reflect the city that we live in. Uh, and last year, before the pandemic started, we formed an artistic advisory council for the Atlanta Opera that included four singers, uh, wonderful friends of the opera, wonderful friends of mine. And in the past year, we worked together to figure out new models and new ways that the opera can become relevant for the community. Those four singers are Jamie Barton, Morris Robinson, Michael Mays, and Kevin Burdett. All of them performed with the Atlanta Opera. Morris was Porgy, uh, Mike Mays was the Dead Man Walking, Jamie Barton was Sister Helen in Dead Man Walking, Kevin Burdett performed many times as the Pirate King in Pirates of Penzance. 
And they were the core group that we built the rest of the team around them. And by the way, it's, it's an unbelievable team. It's not only those four. It also includes uh, Atlanta-based singer or Atlanta natives like Reggie Smith, who performed in Porgy, Jasmine Habersham, Trace Mager, who's from Macon, Georgia, Alex Schrader and Daniela Mack, who are now making their home in Valdosta, Georgia, Ryan McKinney, who's singing in the biggest opera houses in the world, Talise Travine, who was just our best, and Megan Marino, who's married to Michael Mays and was here recently in uh, Eugene Onegin as Olga. So it's an all-star team. They are creative, and that's the important part of it. They're not only great singers, they are great minds, and they are incredible partners in pushing this groundbreaking model forward. This is all fantastic. Now, what will be required of the singers who comprise the company? So this model is meant to create optionality, is the underlying idea behind it is to create commitment and involvement with the community that they live in, with the opera company that they call home. Uh, being a part of that means that uh, they will be involved in a variety of initiatives from connecting with kids in education, educational environment where we are doing a program for children and tell about their story, how they became stars. Uh, involvement in uh, media, in having interviews with someone like you, Lois, uh, in performing uh, live when we can, and we have plans to perform live as long as it's safe, performing in those shows as much as they're available. And if we cannot perform, record some digital content some recitals or programming that would be broadcast to people's homes. And so it's a variety of activities, but the underlying point in it all is this commitment for an organization that they call home. You mentioned returning to the stage. The other day we spoke with Susan Booth and Tanache Kajisi Bolden from the Alliance Theater, and they have a way of tiptoeing back into live performance. It's a hybrid with digital programming as well. Have you decided on any live performances that will take place for Atlanta Opera? We are definitely planning on live performances. Whether they will take place or not is beyond our control. Uh, we cannot control the circumstances. We can control how we react to them. So for that, to that end, uh, it all harkens back into one element, and that is the safety and the well-being of our artists, of our staff, and of our audience. That is our very first priority. So for that reason, we put together a new health and safety advisory board that brings together epidemiologists, public health specialists, doctors, including Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who's a professor of infectious disease at Emory University, John Halpert, who's a president and CEO of Grady Hospital, but also the vice chair of Georgia Department of Public Health. And this team of experts is gonna be on hand to advise us and observe safety while at the same time complying with all the latest safety guidelines. Now, why is this important? Because we believe, and they believe, by the way, they strongly believe that the community needs a pick-me-up right now. We need to be lifted. And it, it makes me think often of this saying that if you want to be lifted, try to lift other people because that will help you. So they strongly believe in that, but they also believe that there is a way to observe social distancing and come back with live performances that are safe. And in the next few weeks, we will further reveal those plans. I can tell you that just like Susan Booth, 
who I admire greatly. I think she's a visionary director, incredibly smart. Just like the Alliance, uh, we are planning a variety of programming that will respond to circumstances. If we can perform safely, we will be there, trust me. And that's the plan. But if we cannot, because the government uh, decreed so, or the city, or who knows what happens in October, we will create a digital content that will b blow people's minds and that will be broadcast to the safety of their homes. We look forward to hearing more from you when that news unfolds. Tomer, this is absolutely thrilling news, and I hope you can realize every part of it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois, for everything that you do and for keeping us sane during this time. The Atlanta Opera General and Artistic Director Tomer Zvulun. There will be more about the Atlanta Opera Company players on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 to hear about Callenwold's series, Jazz on the Lawn, outdoor concerts with social distance seating. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. You can subscribe to the City Lights podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and several other platforms. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.